welcome, whether you are a fitness professional, you're a coach, or you are an everyday Joe or Janet looking for some reliable wellness information that you can trust. This is Better Than Fine. I'm your host, Darlene Marshall. And if you have been a fan of the show so far, I just want to encourage you to subscribe, to like whatever you might be listening to, or to write us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. And welcome. I'm so glad to have you here. And today, I'm going to talk about something that kind of feels like it's it's everywhere right now. How often do you hear about the phrases meditation and mindfulness? But, you know, when I met my guest, uh, there was a vibe that was just completely different than any other meditation and mindfulness teacher that I had encountered before. Now, we're both... I think elder millennials, I think, I think I can call Corey that. I know I'm an elder millennial. And back when, when we were in college age, around the time we both started playing with the concepts of mindfulness and meditation, it wasn't really as ubiquitous as it is now. But now you know, everyone's kind of heard about these ideas. There's, there's apps, there's classes, there's books. There's even a Netflix special now on meditation. But often when people are asking about meditation, they bring up wanting to feel relaxed or peaceful. Maybe they want to be more productive. It just feels like wanting something. And my guest today is going to share with us a bit more about the presence of being in your life. My guest today is intimately familiar with meditation. Corey Muscara is a former monk. He's a co-founder of Mindfulness.com and the best-selling author of the book, Stop Missing Your Life. He taught mindful leadership at Columbia University. He's an instructor at the Positive Psychology Program at the University of Pennsylvania. And for the last 10 years, he's been offering mindfulness keynotes, workshops, and retreats all over the world. Corey Mascara, welcome to Better Than Fine. Thanks, Darlene. Hey, everyone. Nice to be here. It's, it's so great to have you because I'll be honest. Two years ago, when I first started doing the show and I made my hit list of my someday maybes, you were very much at the top of the list. And it's nice to, to finally have you on the show and to get to talk about something I know we're both very passionate about, which is meditation and mindfulness. Uh, you have a great story of how you came into meditating. Would you share that with us, please? Yeah. Um, I'm assuming you're referring to the one that starts with a girl. Uh, <laughs> so my interesting path into this work. Uh, it wasn't a noble path. I was trying to impress my hippie girlfriend in college. She was in a meditation and um, I wanted her to think I was cool. So I started meditating. And a few weeks after that, she broke up with me. And so there wasn't a happy ending there. But the different happy ending was that the pain of that breakup is the thing that actually caused me to start taking the practice more seriously, which I think a lot of people can resonate with, not necessarily in a meditative context, but usually pain or discomfort troubles us into a deeper inquiry with our heart, our soul, and our life. And so it was the one thing that I was finding was actually giving me relief from some of the mental agony. And you know, we're talking about a, a breakup at 20 years old, so it's not um, catastrophic, but in my small world, it felt like it at the time. And was flooded with regret and anger and sadness and rumination about myself. And I was finding that there was just a way to be 
in relationship to my experience, to be present with my experience, uh, such that I wasn't getting caught by or as sucked into the content of it, which uh, created this experience of, of ease. And then all of these secondary benefits kept coming up where my, you know, I had very restless sleep throughout my adolescence and up until that point, wake up, you know, 20, 30 times a night. And, um, meds didn't really like it. And then, you know, within a few weeks of the meditation, I was waking up only a couple times a night and I had a night where I didn't wake up at all. And that was really interesting. Uh, I was able to focus better. I found when I was going to class that I could actually like stay attuned to the lecture, listen better in conversation. And there was just this general sense of ease that was starting to develop that was most interesting because it was less contingent upon the fluctuations of the external world around me. Whereas previously, I think much of my happiness was uh, dependent on things being a particular way. And so I took my type A personality into this a little deeper. And uh, I was doing like 15 minutes a day of meditation. And I said, what would happen if I did 15 hours a day? And so after I graduated, I went over to Southeast Asia, lived as a monk in a monastery where we were meditating. Uh, I had to do a minimum of 14 hours of meditation a day. And that was a six and a half month silent retreat. So a really big, deep dive into this work. And I went there thinking, uh, well, I was wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, and I just had this sense of like, I'm going to have a short-term investment that's going to be hard, and I'm going to go deep, and then I'm going to come back into the rest of the world in my life, and everything's going to be good. Uh, like, I'll do my work now and taking care of for the future. And there's some truth to that. There was um, a lot shifted, like the hardware did fundamentally shift in a way that there's for instance, like I don't, I don't have an inner critic anymore than that used to be quite harsh in my life. But uh, from the perspective of there's no more problems or no more struggles or no more suffering, uh, that's definitely not true. It, um, what I found is it gave me new resources to work with the different things uh, that were arising in my life in the context of relationships or needed to make money. Um, just being a human interacting with other humans. And so uh, over the last 10 years, or all the time since then, I've really just been trying to piece together and fill in some of the gaps from that foundational experience, which is what has taken me into positive psychology, which is where we met exploring aspects of trauma, behavior change, even like hypnosis and yoga and NLP. And um, yeah, there's just an insatiable desire, it seems, to, uh, to understand what it means to live fully and well. I'm so glad that you shared a few of the extra layers here around your, you know, you, you were a little uh, self-critical around the, oh, it's, it's a breakup at 20, but, but so much suffering and struggle is relative, right? And, and to share that authentically. And then this intention going it was Burma, right? You were meditating yeah. in Burma. Yeah. Going to Burma, spending that six months thinking like, okay, magic wand. And, and I don't know if I've ever told you about this. I went to Thailand to study yoga and had oh, a very yeah. similar like, like, oh, I'm going to spend these six weeks and just doing yoga in this little magic island. And then I'll wander home and I'll be different. And I remember being in the cab on the train ride from JFK to my house in 
in uh, New Jersey and having the thought that I was in the wrong, like I'm on the wrong Island, like just the stress of being back in Manhattan. Um, but with the intention of bringing that back, but also recognizing that you still struggle, right? You still experience all of the challenges of being a human in the modern context. It's just experiencing it with a different set of tools. Mm -hmm. Do you want to speak to that at all? Like, I just so appreciate your authentically recognizing that like, just because you're a mindfulness instructor doesn't mean that you don't like have bad days. Yeah. Well, it's, it's pointing to the very, uh, <laughs> in some sense, this work is like incredibly boring <laughs> because nothing, <laughs> nothing really changes. Like you still got to put your pants on in the morning. You're still going to get old. You're still going to get sick at times. You still are working with thoughts and emotions, sensations and, I think in spiritual endeavors, but just even regular personal growth endeavors into secular mindfulness, there's um, a bit of a romanticizing of it and, and some idea that we have of like things changing on, on some fundamental level where we're, we're different. And there's like, there's truth to that, of course, but the, the truth is in a certain it's like an orthogonal shift in perspective toward your life which you know if you just think anyone who's maybe tried meditation or has noticed like that you can watch your thoughts right Let, let's take something like thoughts for a moment and anyone even as you're listening you can do this right now you just notice like what is my mind thinking about And for me, I'm noticing, am I leaving too much silence on a podcast? And so I, I can watch that thought and I can see it as a, like a, a cloud passing through the sky. And that thought could have been the same thought, you know, we do this 10 years ago before me having a practice, still having that thought. But what's the difference between that thought with a mindfulness practice and without a mindfulness practice without a mindfulness practice there's a an identification with it. it's like this is the thought and it becomes all that you can see it's it's you you're sort of riding the waves of of the thinking mind and in one moment it's like oh i'm doing great this is a great interview and another moment it's like oh this sucks i'm like really blowing this one it's like happy sad happy sad happy sad look at your life and how do emotions fluctuate and how does the, the sense of ourselves and how we're doing and how our life is unfolding, fluctuating, it's fluctuating often because of the thoughts moving through our mind and our perspective that we're bringing to how we interpret what is arising in this moment. I'm getting into a relationship. It's exciting. Things are good. I'm doing a good job. Oh, it's dull. We're losing some intimacy. Things aren't good. I'm doing a bad job. Oh, we're breaking up. Shouldn't have done that. Now it's bad. And so it's a really interesting thing to see, like when you get into a practice like this, it's like those things are still going to unfold in your life, but what you're connected to on a moment to moment basis and what becomes the defining aspect of you on a deeper level does fundamentally shift. It's now less about the momentary content moving through your mind and more about this capacity to sort of 
step back and stay connected to what we could call uh, a fundamental you or a truer you, the part of you that is able to be aware of what's happening without being so swept around in what's happening. And the reason that's powerful is because everything's always going to shift. Anything great in your life is going to shift. And if that doesn't shift, your relation, your experience of it is going to shift. There's going to be some sort of adaptation. So if we're putting our refuge in the external variables of our life being arranged in a particular way as our happiness, we're already setting ourselves up for inevitable suffering or at least just a roller coaster ride of this. And certain traditions would describe that as suffering because it's just there's never any sort of stability and ease and the system can never actually be at peace even when something is good there's a fear of like when is the next shoe going to drop and when something is bad we're just creating so much extra tension by fighting it and so the practice of meditation where it starts to uh, create this new relationship with your your day-to-day life is that it trains you in this ability to just Take yourself, your mind and body, it's here. We're not going to go into some transcendent realm. You don't have to put on any special clothes. Just like, let's close the eyes, keep them open if you want. And then just see, oh, what's it like to start paying attention? And you might notice, oh, I feel my body breathing. So you give yourself something to focus on, like the breath. But then you're watching the mind get caught up in thoughts and the thought might say, oh, I'm such an idiot for saying that to that person before. Like, did you see the way she looked at me? Like, I, why am I why am I so socially awkward? Right. And that's a thought that if you're not aware of it, can take you 12 hours down a rabbit hole of self-flagellation and rumination and hatred. Or it's a thought that we can notice and go, whoo, yeah, that one hurts to think about. But hello, thought, I see you, like we're watching a cloud, and then just redirect the attention back to the breath. And if, from that perspective, you've just totally changed what is going to happen in the next moments of your life by shifting your relationship to this moment of your life. And that is why how you relate to a single moment of your life can impact the rest of your life entirely, or at least can start getting momentum going in a different way. And we have all of these opportunities throughout the day for this certain kind of attunement that fundamentally shifts what will happen next. And so mindfulness, in a sense, is is a practice of waking up to what is always happening on an ongoing basis. But in such a way that we're not overly identified with it and not reacting to it in a subconscious way. And it turns out that changes everything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Waking up, waking up to the present moment, right. To our own awareness, to the, to the idea that we have a mind at all. Mm -hmm. Um, You said a moment ago about the, the, Oh, I'm so awkward. And it takes you down a 12 hour rabbit hole. My immediate thought was, Oh, it builds a whole identity Mm -hmm. that 12 hours, 12 years, um, and I want to welcome the listener. You are listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Arlene Marshall. My guest today is Corey Muscara, uh, who is a mindfulness and meditation instructor. He's the author of the book, Stop Missing Your Life. And I think that ties us nicely to this idea, right, of, of if you are cultivating this awareness through practice, mm-hmm. one of the things that you're cultivating is the presence and awareness of the life that you are living and having and 
choosing in some ways, right? Um, Which I so appreciate about the way in which you approach this work. Uh, for For the benefit of the listener, we're throwing these words around, you know, mindfulness and meditation. How do you differentiate them? Yeah, the very simple way would be uh, to put an analogy, like a, a fitness analogy on it. Um, you could think of meditation as going to the gym, you know, a dedicated period of time where you're strengthening uh, your mind in the same way that you would strengthen your body. And then mindfulness is like your fitness level. It's uh, a capacity to be aware, to be attuned, to be able to redirect focus. And on some level, that is inherent to all of us. On another level, it is something that we need to practice getting reconnected to and even strengthening things like the ability to shift attention from one thing to another, to be able to zoom in on something that we really want to focus on, but also to be able to zoom out and just take in what is here without being really narrow with it. And so, you know, meditation could be a a one minute period where you drop in and you just take a breath and you feel your body rooted in the earth. It could also be, you know, 30 minutes or 60 minutes where you're lying down, bringing awareness of different aspects uh, of your body or sounds or sensations, anything in your experience. The mindfulness has less to do with the content of your experience and more to do with the awareness that it's connecting to. And so meditation is just any dedicated period of time to that, which is why some people will even say there's no distinction between meditation and mindfulness, because at the, the absolute expression of, uh, of each, it's just this moment to moment awareness of what's here now. I like the, I, first, I appreciate you using your exercise metaphor here at the NESM podcasting <laughs> network. That's going to resonate well. Um, but I also think it's an apt metaphor in another layer, right? So there's all these different kinds of exercise that you can use if you want to get a different kind of adaptation, right? Like if I'm going to run a marathon, I'm going to have a very different training program than if I want to become a professional power lifter, Mm -hmm. right? Very different. And at the same time, I think one of the misconceptions I encounter around meditation is the idea that like meditation is somehow monolithic and that there isn't all of this variance, right? So can you just speak to it? different practices give us different outcomes and what is out there in that landscape that you find helpful and and useful in your teaching. Yeah. It's complicated because there's a lot of stuff that is being thrown under the umbrella of meditation these days. And it will include things like visualization, meditations, people will include mantras or affirmations in that. Um, And then there's, you know, straight up mindfulness meditation, which has less to do with focusing on a phrase, a word, or a visual, and more to do with just becoming more aware of what is already here. Within that category, there's a lot of different practices we can do. Some of the common ones are things like um, body scan meditations, where you sit down or you lie down, and you do bring awareness to feeling each area of your body from the head all the way down to the toes, which I initially found to be an incredibly boring practice. I sleep <laughs> maybe the first 20 times I did it. Um, but 
it really, I, I really developed an appreciation for it over time because I didn't realize how disembodied I was. Disembodied meaning like I spent a lot of time just in my head and in my thoughts and in my ideas. I like it up there, but you know, when it comes to like living a full life and an attuned life and an empathic life or even an excited life, where do all of these things show up? They show up in the body. Joy is not just this thought of, oh, I'm joyful right now. There's a lightness in the face, something you'll feel on the chest. Um, and even even the, the negative side of things like grief. I can't tell you how many people I've worked with over the last decade who the pain that they experienced doesn't come from grief that they had. It came from and comes from not having felt the grief that they had and instead pushed it down, suppressed and then went the next years of their life in this glorified compartmentalization, which um, I have total understanding for and sympathy for and, uh, you know, no judgment toward it from the perspective of like, I get it. Things are hard. It's hard to feel certain things. And like if there's a lot going on in your life and there's a painful experience, sometimes it just feels like the best thing to do is to push it down, um, not touch it and just keep looking forward. But as Bessel van der Kolk says, the body keeps the score. It, it you know, you're not going to forget <laughs> these things. And so if what you touch deeply can be released and if there's something that arises that you don't actually get the chance to feel and it's like it's coming up as something that needs to be felt and the only strategy is to push it away or we're disconnected from our body to the point where we're not even aware that it's arising, then we're just going to continue to reinforce this um, uh, a state of numbness, essentially, because it's, it's not like you could just shut out the bad and then have the good uh, nervous system doesn't really work like that. You, you shut down the ability to feel when you try to shut down what you don't want. And so, you know, then you lose touch with the joy as well. The painful reality of that is like, yeah, you now are opening yourself up to the full range of what it means to be human. And that includes some uncomfortable things. And it includes potentially having to feel sadness and grief at times and confusion. And that's the reason we compartmentalize in the first place is because we don't want to feel those things. And if that had zero consequences, then I would say that's a great strategy, but it doesn't have zero consequences. It has very significant consequences, not the least of which is you will actually miss the richness of your life. And so what starts to get established with this practice, you know, the long way of talking about the body scan is you reconnect to this body that you are in, in this life. And don't get spiritual with it. Like It's like, oh, I'm not the body. Like, let's transcend everything. As long as you're going to be in this human form, you are going to be in a body. So if you want to talk about the next incarnation, if you believe in that, when you're not in a body anymore, sure. But in this human life, being in a body is, is what comes with it. So we need to learn to be to be in it, to be relating to it, to be at, at peace in it, to have um, a sense of ease, even within the dis-ease you're not going to be able to experience empathy for another person if, if you can't feel something in your body. And so a, a body scan meditation, even though it just seems mundane, it's just, I'm like feeling different areas of the body, you know, feeling my hands, oh, there's tingliness, feeling the shoulders. You are getting the opportunity to see all the ways that you 
your tighten and invite that to relax. So that's like a very surface level, but significant implication of the practice, just general relaxation and ease and your sleep will deepen for sure. But you're also just um, reconnecting to this, to your heart, to sensation, to your life. And you're learning to do so in a way that actually is building the capacity to be with the sensation rather than running from them immediately when it gets uncomfortable. And uh, that's something that takes practice because if we just go based on our conditioning, we're just going to flee every time we have something we don't like. So these are practices that, and this is how I define presence in my book, that simultaneously are peeling back some of the layers of defenses that we have put up, the layers of guarding that we put up to, to you know, not have to make contact with life because it can be tough at times. So we're softening some of those walls that we've put up, but we're simultaneously building new resources to hold life. Because what would be the point if we just pull them those down? It's like, well, here comes life again. It's like, put them back up. We need a different strategy. And mindfulness is a strategy that shows us that there's a way to be present with what is arising without being suffocated by it. And uh, I think that's where this connection to not missing your life comes in. It's like, that's what gives you the resources to be in your life in all of the different moments of it. Yeah. I'm so glad that you brought up embodiment and thank you for such a complete exploration of it. Um, it probably doesn't surprise you to know that I love body scan meditation. It's what I really teach <laughs> um, as a, an embodiment person. But, you know, so much of what you just said brought up for me this concept that, you know, feelings are information and sometimes information is overwhelming. And if information is overwhelming consistently enough, we start to unplug from the information, right? Mm -hmm. um, but before I dive in deeper on those thoughts, because I really want to, uh, this is the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Arlene Marshall, and my guest today is Corey Muscara. So let's let's dive a little deeper then around, you know, if, if feelings are information, which is what I hear you describing, right? And so processing that information, using it as a learning tool um, so that we can fully explore and show up for our lives. Because to your point, everything that we're ever going to do, every conversation we're ever going to have, every talent we're ever going to explore, every contribution we ever make, the living of purpose, like all of that happens through the physical vessel that our consciousness rides around in, right? Mm. Yeah. And so some of what I hear you describing and some of what I see in your work is not only the acceptance of that concept, but also the creation of a safe container to explore and process whatever comes up when you do go inward. Um, do you want to speak at all to what that looks like for someone who maybe is struggling with it? Because I know that when when I talk to people about meditation very often, I hear them say like, oh, I can't I just can't I just can't sit there like that. I just can't. I just can't do the thing. Like I, I, I do it wrong and I have all these stories in my head and just the who, like how do you respond to that impulse? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There tend to be a lot of layers to the feedback of I can't do it for X, Y, Z reasons. Uh, the big, the big one does tend to be thoughts. I have too many thoughts to meditate. I have ADD, I have ADHD. My mind's all over the place. Um, and there are realistic considerations to be taken from, you know, maybe something like ADHD where like sitting still 
uh, is just can feel like absolute torture. So there are ways that you can work with that where you might first do a walking meditation where you have some movement involved and you're focusing on each step or you're just being present while you're outside or present with what you're seeing around you. So there, there's like an on-ramp into this work. Um, but anytime someone says, I can't do it, it's usually because they have an idea of what it is and there's something that is arising in their experience that they perceive to be not it. And it's a barrier to getting to that thing. And that creates an incredibly tense, frustrating experience. Uh, what it can look like is like, oh, I heard about meditation. Sounds cool. Read it in a magazine. Like, I want to do it. Say all the research says I'll be more peaceful. Cool. Let's do it. 10 minutes. I'm going to get going. I'm going to be peaceful. And you sit down and it's just like, as soon as you decompensate and you actually give yourself the, the space to feel what's present, it's like, oh, there's a moment of peace, but then some stuff starts to come up and it's this, and like maybe there's some unprocessed things or emotions from a conversation you had with your partner earlier in the morning that you just shut out of your mind because it was too much to think about. And now that you actually have the space to be open and present, that starts to arise and you feel anger. And then what happens? The object is peace. I'm doing this for peace. I'm feeling anger. It's not working. And then it's like, let go of the practice doesn't work for me. Or we get angry at the practice because it's like, it becomes a form of a BS. It's like, you know, this thing actually makes me feel more tense. I don't want to do that. And so first we got to get out of the idea that just doing the practice is going to immediately lead to peace. Peace is the byproduct of meeting reality. When you meet reality, you soften the need to run from yourself. You, you develop a clarity and acceptance around what's here. With that clarity and acceptance, you no longer need to run away from an emotion that you're fearful of. When you don't need to run, you start to find some stillness. And with stillness, there's ease and there's peace. And so um, the, the less exciting way to put it is like you have to walk through the mud to get to the other side, to get to the green grass. But it's not, it's not that much of a, like, it's not, that's actually not an appropriate metaphor because it makes it seem like there's all this delayed gratification. Instead, it's just a matter of meeting what is present in your experience right now with a mind that is, can be soft, accepting and relaxed. And so if that anger comes up, you're doing the practice and you notice, wow, there's these waves of anger. Instead of trying to bypass them or jump to some piece or seeing it as an impediment, you just view it as, oh, this is what I get to soften into right now. This is what I get to relax into. And the phrase I like to give people to work with this is, um, is to say, you're welcome here too. You're welcome mm -hmm. here too. And so what that would look like in practice is, you know, you feel the anger and you feel, oh, I don't want to feel this. And then you just say, you're welcome here too. And so you're, you're relating to the anger almost as if it's a, it's a part of you or a part that you don't want to be there. And you're, you're welcoming it in, into the wholeness of you and watch what happens when you do that. Because what it is, it's the, the opposite of resistance. It's instead of 
pushing like this, it's an open palm like this. You're welcome here too. Yeah. And, and even this, but this, that can feel too much for people at times. And so just something like this is a starting place. You're welcome here too. You're going to notice that there's ease that just comes from not fighting your experience and experience times resistance equals suffering. Basically the definition of enlightenment is, uh, eradicating, uh, any yeah. sort of resistance to experience. So it doesn't mean that you endorse it. It doesn't mean that you like it. Uh, it doesn't mean that you don't have preferences. You know, if you, you can be an enlightened monk and you put a, you know, a, a delicious salad in front of you or a bowl of feces. I don't think there's anyone that gets to a point where they're, they're going to prefer the ball of feces or be indifferent. So there's still preferences, but there's a, there's a lightness that's held around um, the experience. And yeah. So yeah. anyone that's just to punctuate that anyone that's like struggling saying, I can't do it. Start with the thing that feels like it's getting in the way of the it and just practice being present with that and showing that as much love and kindness as you can. And it'll, it'll transform your practice. Thank you. Yeah. I, th I hear in there like the, like what I, what I think I hear you saying, and you can, you tell me if, if it's accurate is giving permission to not react to the reaction, right? Like the thoughts are going to come. Um, I had, I had um, Scott Barry Kaufman on I don't know, a couple of weeks ago and uh, SBK and I were talking about um, he had just had Sam Harris on his podcast debating uh, free will. Yeah. And Sam's argument against free will is that like, you can't control what thought is going to come. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, but I can also do things that are going to shape my path that may eventually curb the trajectory of those thoughts. Yeah. And maybe I can't control this thought right now, but maybe I can do things that are going to create different thoughts 10 years from now. And is that not like some subtle form of free will? And what I think I hear you saying is kind of along those ideas. It's like, the thoughts are going to come mm -hmm. and that the point is not, I'm never going to have an anger response or I'm never going to have something come up in meditation that I don't particularly care to see about myself, but to give myself the permission to not start the stack of reacting to my reactions that ultimately leads to go, ah, I'm not going to do this anymore. Yeah. It's it's an interesting conversation. I've yeah, I've talked to Scott about. You don't have about to go down that. Well. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> don't. <laughs> I, I I can hold both camps. Um, sure. Because you know, I studied in a similar tradition as Sam Harris, um, and like I, I I took that perspective of not having free will for years um, because I did see like in the deepest of meditations, just I wasn't controlling anything that was arising. Um, and so there is an argument that that could be made that what arises and then what it conditions in you as a response to, like, you know, even and that shows up as a form of agency, that all of that is just conditions unfolding in a non free will, non self sort of way. I think there is an argument for that. At times, I really like that perspective. There's something about it where it's just like, oh, like all the stuff that I'm taking so personally, that's like, I can't make this decision. I can't figure this out. I can't get this relationship stuff right. It's just like, it's way bigger than any small I that is trying to do life and make just like, it's just, it's conditions yep. unfolding. 
And so there are times where like, I really like settling in that. And, um, and I think there's a way to be settled in that and to still acknowledge that there's a felt sense of free will. And you could say that felt sense of free will is actually a free will um, that is like interrupting and directing this, this stream of previous impulses that are presenting themselves in the present moment that then you are meeting in an intentional way. What is creating that moment of choosing to show up and meet? I don't know. I just do know that I, I have a sense of being able to impact it in some way. But sometimes it's kind of like, I had a, heard a teacher talking about this recently. It's almost like a moment of, of grace where you actually do come into awareness. Because think of, think of for anyone that's meditated, right? You're going to know. And if you haven't meditated, you can still associate into this. You're focusing on your breath, inhale, exhale, mind wanders. What is the moment where the mind has wandered and you have realized that it's wandered? What's the moment where you go from unconsciousness to consciousness? Did you actually control that? I can't find anything in my system that consciously chose to become conscious in that moment. So there's an argument that there's something deeper. You could call it a moment of grace. You could call it just like spontaneous awakening. But the an argument my teacher would have made in Burma is like when you do have that moment, you you nurture it. Like you hold it as precious because now you are awake. And, and you double down on that. You almost triple down on that of just like, like let that presence saturate every moment of your being. And so, yeah, the free will philosophical conversation, if we zoom out, just make it more practical. Yes, things are unfolding. And, and if we had to put it in like a tweet, I don't believe any person is responsible or I don't believe any person is responsible for who they are right now. But I do believe it's their responsibility um, to develop a self-awareness and choose how you'll respond next. Another way to say that, I don't believe it's a person's fault for who they are in this moment, but there's a responsibility to show up with self-awareness. And so once that awareness is there, then yes, there, there, is, there is an agency there and you can choose. And that's the power of this practice is it gives us more of those moments. Well, and I think we are of like mind on this idea that it is, it is that awareness. It is the cultivation of that mindful awareness of what's going on with you that empowers an individual to make positive change in their life. And that when one chooses to engage in, whether it's a meditation practice, a mindfulness, like to me, the label almost doesn't matter what we, what the tool is, what the intervention is that continues to foster a positive sense of awareness and empowerment and agency that primes that process that helps someone grow through. Um, and to me, so the, the new, you know, the, the mishmash argument on free will is fun to have, mm-hmm. but it almost becomes meaningless because at the end of the day, what I care about is like, what's going to help the person I'm trying to help, what's going to help me and what's going to help the, the, those people. Yeah. I mean, in this case, what's going to help the listener. Yeah. Um, so we are we're just about at that time. Um, and so first, I'd like to thank you so much for sharing your beautiful experiences and, and your deep mind with us. Uh, where might the listener find more about you and be able to engage with your work? Yeah, uh, a lot of my teachings are on Instagram these days at Corey Mascara. Um, I have a book, as you've seen, Stop Missing Your Life. Um, 
run retreats and workshops and master classes on different topics at coreymascara.com. And, um, and if I have a daily text message community that seems to be one of my most popular offerings for people, and it's free, where I just send a text out every day on a, a different topic. Um, and if anyone wants to join that, just text the word better to uh, 631-305-2874. There's no strings attached to it. You can unsubscribe at any time. Um, but just another way to stay involved with the teachings. It's like a daily shower for your mind. Ooh, a little, a little personal hygiene for the inside of my brain. That's it. I love it. Well, thank you again for, for being on the show. I want to remind the listener to please like, subscribe. And if you'd like to, sh- to make any suggestions about the show, about future episodes, ask me any questions, you can find me on Instagram. I'm at darlene.coach. And I would absolutely love to hear you shoot me a DM and be sure to leave us some reviews here on the NASM Podcast Network. Mm-hmm.